Hi, and welcome to the Off the Charts Football Podcast. I'm Mark Simon, joined by Matt Mediterian, former NFL scout and now of Sports Info Solutions. Justin Stein from the Ops Department is our producer, and after a deep dive into the scouting side of the Football Rookie Handbook last week, today we'll talk about the research and analytics that can be found in the handbook. We welcome in Alex Figderman, another of the co-authors of the book, and our expert on the statistical side. Alex, first of all, can you explain to the listeners your background and your time at Sports Info Solutions? I'm a senior research analyst. I've been with the company since 2017. I came from the baseball side, but uh, one of the things that brought me to the company was just having an interest in both baseball and football. And I've gotten a real opportunity to sort of take hold of the football analytics side of things. Primarily, the things that I work on the football side are related to our total points metric, which is our sort of catch-all metric for evaluating players, which we introduced in the rookie handbook last year on the college level. And then this year, we're also adding uh, some additional layers to that, which we'll talk about as we go. All right. So give us a sense for the statistical content in the book. What are the most important things in there? And let's start by talking about our flagship football stat, total points. So total points essentially starts with the expected points added of a play. So a play might be worth one EPA, but that is essentially a team stat. That's what happened on the play overall, but it has no real Uh, meaning in terms of the responsibility of the different players on the play. And so we have dozens of charting data points that we use to essentially identify, well, this uh, offensive lineman blew a block on the play. And so he's, he's given sort of an outsized responsibility for the play in a negative sense. And the quarterback threw it this many yards downfield and the receiver was able to catch it in stride. And so the quarterback's given a certain amount of responsibility based on that. And then the yards after catch, might also contribute. So there's all these different elements that we have from a charting data perspective that we use to inform how we would apportion the expected points added for a given play so that we're not just saying this play was worth X and all the players on the play kind of share that value. We're actually trying to split it up among the different players involved. So that's total points in general. Specific to college football, we have an additional layer, which is opponent quality. So obviously there's a a wide spread in uh, team quality at the college level, especially when we're talking about FBS versus FCS matchups. And so we have an additional layer where we basically use a a little bit of an iterative approach to try and get a sense for how good your opponent is on an offensive or defensive side. And so we make adjustments to uh, the numbers from there. So can I ask though, with that, like, does that mean that like the SEC is like way above everybody else and it it, uh, it treats a player uh, differently because he's in the SEC? Yeah, we do it by conference. I will say that the differences are mostly between the like very haves and the very have nots. It's it, uh, And that's more of like a plus or minus 25% type adjustment. Whereas if we're talking about two like power five conferences, the differences aren't that large between them. Uh, we're really talking about Power five versus group of five or FBS versus FCS, where you see those bigger differences. And additionally, so what we added this year uh, specific to college, but we will plan on rolling this out sort of generally is what we're calling total points rating. And so that is, we had trouble trying to communicate total points as a rate stat, as a way of saying like, this guy was this good per play. And we wanted to make it really easily consumable. And so we use the per play performance of a given component of total points, and we compare you to the average. 
And then we scale it like with a test score or a video game. So we're saying that roughly 75 is average, 99 is excellent, and 50 is terrible. And so we now have the ability to sort of represent the player's performance per play on a scale that you can sort of easily consume. And I can say, oh, he's a 90 in terms of rushing, for example. So in terms of kind of like summing up in layman's terms, total points is really cool because instead of just expected points added, and yes, we've reached the point now where we can say just expected points added, we can split up those expected points added in amongst the 22 guys on the field. And then the total points rating is awesome because some teams played 12 games this year and some teams played four. So the amount of total value that you created is kind of irrelevant. Let's put it on the, on the same scale. And that's what total points rating does. It puts it on a per play and then it just scales it so that you can understand it as if you were playing Madden. So kudos to you, Alex, on that. So one other follow-up to that. If someone has a high total points rating, are we able to connect that to how they uh, are within, the, within their draft ranking? So in terms of our rankings, we essentially identify, I mean, we, we sort of split the process between the scouting side and the analytics side, and we want to present it that way. We don't necessarily want to try and sort of force these two stories to line up with each other. We want to present what he looks like on film and what he looks like on the stat sheet. And, and you can basically, you know, mix those at whatever, to whatever degree you want. We want to sort of present these kind of independent evaluations. That said, we definitely, even in terms of editing this book and going through, we had a lot of cases where a scout would come in and say, hey, this guy's a 68 in, in pass blocking, but we graded him at this. And, and I'm going to say, that's fine. The, you know, you can evaluate him one way and we can evaluate him statistically a different way. I think that that's okay as long as we sort of understand where each of those uh, sort of quote sides are coming from. Yeah, Mark, I think you've described the book as like very much being geared as the reader is the GM. And that's totally what we tried to do there. We have a scouting department, we have an analytics department, and we're presenting the best information from each side so that the decision makers can make the decisions. And that's what's kind of cool about reading the book. All right. And I want to jump to other statistical content in the book. Uh, And there's quite a lot of it. Leaderboards galore, as I think I have said a couple of times on Twitter. Alex, what would you say, speaking to the other statistical content in the book, what are some of the most important things that people should be looking for? Yeah, leaderboards galore is definitely the right way to describe it. So in addition to some additional stats that we've added, we also went from six leaderboards per position to 18. So we have a whole bunch of different leaderboards. And we also made adjustments to those as Matt was alluding to, because schools play different numbers of games this year in particular. So we made sure that any of those counting stats are on a per game basis. So we can sort of set level set people's uh, expectations. So the teams that played more games than everybody don't just litter the leaderboards. In terms of the uh, stats that we really like that we have in here, a couple new ones. So one is uh, predicted completion percentage or what we call PCOMP, which is analogous to the completion percentage above expectation that you'll see from next gen, that sort of thing. Uh, so we're using the route and whether there was pressure on the play and other sort of elements of the play to, to try and predict how likely a completion would be. And then we can sort of compare your actual completion percentage to the predicted one and see how well you do relative to the throws that you were assigned. So specifically, um, if, you, if you're familiar with uh, expected completion percentage and, and CPOE, this has a, a 0.9 correlation when we do it on the NFL level. But like Alex mentioned, it's really cool because it doesn't involve coordinate data. It involves what formation you're aligned in, what the route combination is by all the receivers, what the coverage scheme is by the defense, and whether or not there's pressure on the quarterback. And we're able to achieve a really 
similar model. They each have strengths, I guess, over one over the other. But uh, one of the coolest things is that we can apply it to college football. So that's one of the really interesting stats you find in the book. All right, let's get into some player specifics. Is there a particular leaderboard that caught your eye? Yeah, so uh, I wouldn't say necessarily a particular single leaderboard, uh, actually. So I was looking at, at the safety leaderboards, and now that we have so many, you can sort of see where names pop up in a bunch of different leaderboards. So uh, Talanoa Hufanga, who is a safety from USC, who's ninth on our board from a scouting perspective, but he was uh, really productive in terms of his final season at USC. He led the position in tackle share, as well as tackles for loss, sacks, pressures, interceptions, all on a per-game basis, as I mentioned. He also blitz about three times as much as any other safety on our board, so he's sort of very unique in his style as well as his performance. As a consequence of, of you know being on all those other leaderboards, he unsurprisingly rates highly in total points. If you're making a lot of these impact plays, you're going to make an impact in terms of an EPA perspective. An interesting thing about him, I guess, is that he played in the box more than anybody at the position. But when we uh, evaluate him using another one of sort of our advanced metrics, adjusted tackle depth plus, which sort of evaluates how close to the line of scrimmage you make your tackles relative to where you were lined up, his tackles were not very close to the line of scrimmage. His adjusted tackle depth plus was essentially 26% farther from the line of scrimmage than the average guy who's lined up like him. And yes, his expectation is a little bit closer to the line of scrimmage because he's lined up in the box so often. But even so, even when you don't have that aspect, he really is making his tackles quite far downfield compared to other safeties who are lined up deeper than him. So he must be making a lot of plays if he's if he's not making a lot of sort of like high value plays near the line of scrimmage. Is that being taken into account in total points? Yeah, I mean, that's that's the the key here. So he's making those tackles for loss. He's getting those sacks. He's getting those pressures. And those are essentially counteracting the fact that when he's making tackles downfield, he's not really getting a lot of, of credit for those tackles because we'd expect him to make tackles closer to the line of scrimmage. And, and just to unpack adjusted tackle depth plus a little bit, ATD plus, um, it's a plus statistic. So for any like baseball fans, it's just like that. It's scaled so that 100 is average. And then the amount above or below average that you are uh, will, will be expressed as, you know, 120 would be 20 uh, percentage points above average. So um, it does that, but it's adjusted tackle depth plus. So it's not just your average tackle depth. And then that's translated. It's actually taking into account where you are lined up and then how well you do given where you're lined up in terms of making those tackles. So it's a, it's one of my favorite statistics probably in the book. It, it's it's simple, but it's telling in a lot of ways. So that was just a great example of, of ATD plus there by you, Alex. All right. So in studying college football numbers, how hard is it to project to the NFL? It's hard. We have some metrics that we are able to feel pretty confident about. Uh, John Shirley did some research in our last book about which stats translate from college into the NFL. And there are some that reflect more on the style of the player, whether it's average throw depth for a quarterback, average depth of target for a receiver, scramble rate, uh, to some extent, broken tackle rate for running backs. And they do a pretty, go- pretty good job of translating to the next level because they reflect more on sort of the, the style of the player as opposed to his performance. In terms of performance metrics, we're rarely talking about correlations that are above 0.3 from college to pro for people who are familiar with correlations. And beyond that, so I did some research uh, this time around on splits that we think are uh, will translate from college to the NFL. Unsurprisingly, We get into kind of small sample discussion there as well, but the splits there are going to translate less consistently than the overall stat in a lot of cases. But what we do find is kind of some interesting results where the 
relationships that we think we understand about how splits work. So for example, passing from a clean pocket is more stable than passing under pressure. That relationship actually flips when we're talking about going from college to pro. And suddenly the correlation between under pressure performance is more consistent from college going to the pro and the unpressured clean pocket performance is less stable going from college to pro. A, a cool example from the book, just picking up on what Alex is saying here, because we find that, that you know, you might expect, okay, show me the ratings, you know, how do these quarterbacks rate without pressure? Because that's how we often think of understanding NFL quarterbacks these days. So if you look at, for example, the IQR leaderboard, independent quarterback rating, which takes normal quarterback rating and, and adjusts it so that it's only taking into account the things that the quarterback can control, right? So we're stripping out drops and things like that. IQR without pressure, you'd see Zach Wilson, Mac Jones, Kyle Trask, uh, Justin Fields kind of neck and neck at the top of that leaderboard. But what Alex's research is indicating is that what we maybe should be looking at is IQR under pressure, because that's been more predictive when we go from college to the NFL. And if we do that, then Mac Jones really separates from the pack. His IQR is 20 points above any of the other quarterbacks in this class. And now maybe this is small sample size. How much was Mac Jones playing under pressure this year, really? Um, that's kind of part of the the whole difficulty of this that, that ties back also. But you know, in terms of why this may be the case, it's possible that that playing without pressure between different, you know, in the NFL, in the context of the NFL is more similar to one another. And the context of playing without pressure in college is just so much easier than playing against an NFL defense that you might actually want to see how a player performs under pressure to get a better sense of how they play in the pros. So that part is intuitive based on what I was taught as a scout, right? We look at how guys perform under pressure. And here it is saying, we might actually want to look at that more than we might have expected. So with regards to quarterbacks, a lot of people talk about them from the perspective of the big three, but maybe should they be talking about them from the perspective of the big four because uh, of Mac Jones' statistical uh, inclination? You know, there there are really, I, I would say, five quarterbacks that are in that top, top category. You got to throw Trey Lance in there as well. Now, Trevor Lawrence is kind of, he's at the top of our rankings. Uh, he's hes pretty bulletproof. I think we talked about it last week with, with Coop and John Todd. Then Justin Fields and Zach Wilson are guys that are graded as well as number one picks in, in most years drafts. Um, but then, you know, a little bit below there, you have Trey Lance and Mac Jones. And each of those guys, I think there's a lot of reason to be excited. If you look at their different statistics, um, you can look at their statistical profiles and see a lot of production in very different contexts. It's like Mac Jones was on a team that was so much better than everybody else that it's hard to understand what his stats mean. And Trey Lance was playing at a level of competition that's so much lower than everybody else that it's hard to understand what his stats mean. Um, and in terms of athleticism, these are these are opposite opposite prospects. So one of these guys, Mac Jones specializes in accuracy, which, which goes into some of those statistics I was just talking about Trey Lance, you know, his specialty is athleticism. So there's, there's boom or bust, I think potential with either of those guys. And, and that's why they're both probably going to end up going in the first round. You both wrote articles uh, for the book outside of uh, the scouting uh, component of the book, as did a number of our colleagues. Let's give them a shout out. John Shirley, John Veros, uh, Dan Fornbach, uh, Sarah Thompson, Bryce Rossler, and Sam Linker. I, I wrote uh, a piece as well. Mark Simon. Of the things that were written about by some of our colleagues, there was injury risk, press coverage. Uh, you wrote about uh, turf injuries. COVID was talked about. Looking ahead to 2022, what were the uh, most interesting pieces that you think are in this book that people are going to enjoy? 
Yeah, as you kind of mentioned there, there was one sort of uh, motif around injuries in this book, uh, for lack of a better word, where um, there were a few articles. We do an article every year where we break down what kind of injuries are happening because we've got such an extensive injury database. But uh, this year, for example, uh, the one that I wrote really dove into the effect of turf. Um, There's been research done in the past on maybe turf is causing an increase in injury risk. And even the NFLPA president, J.C. Treder, has referenced that there are studies that show this. So we, we looked into that within the context of our own data with NFL players, and we found some interesting results. We did find that injury risk increased on turf. We found that really across the board, there were more injuries happening on, on turf fields, no matter how we sliced and diced it. But what was weird is that these weren't happening with the types of injuries that we expected them to happen with. So where other research has shown uh, non-contact injuries and lower body injuries have been uh, the source of the increase. We actually found yes in terms of ankle injuries, but maybe not in terms of knee injuries. And that could be because the the technology has changed and they've put in a lot of focus over the years on improving the way that, that these turfs handle knee strain. It's, it's hard to say exactly what the results mean. That said, we find that it's the contact injuries that are where the increase that we see in injury risk is happening on turf, not the non-contact injuries. So again, what exactly that means, we can't say for sure, but potentially that means that that just the way people can fly around like missiles on, on turf and have a, a, that sort of a, tur- a surface to play on, that increased speed of the game might actually be coinciding with, with, with increased injuries. Yeah, I think I think we still have some, some time to kind of work through this. We're really uh, starting to really hit our groove in terms of using the injury data that we've now collected to a- analyze a lot of different things. So I think we're going to be uh, looking at that a bunch more over the next uh, year or two, certainly. Just to, uh, to your point, Alex, the much more interesting uh, article about injuries is John Shirley's article about injury risk, where he's actually developed a machine learning model that predicts injury risk. So um, we should mention that one too. Yeah. And and certainly, you know, there's, there's plenty of stuff in there and we don't want to necessarily... Uh, give you everything for free. So we want to make sure that people still have things to, to enjoy from the book when they actually get, get around to reading it. So from my perspective, another uh, John Shirley joint, actually, the press coverage analysis. So this is something that, that he had written a little while ago and, and sort of updated for this book. And essentially, a lot of the times when you do analysis, you go in with a certain expectation, and sometimes the results sort of nail that expectation. And to me, this article is exactly that. It's it's showing that press coverage is effective, but it's there's a sampling bias where the only, you know, only the guys who can sort of handle it are going to be doing that. So you're going to be reducing the completion percentage. You're going to be reducing your effectiveness per target. But when you get beat, you're going to get beat worse. And, and these sort of results are, are things that sort of come out in, in his analysis. And you see it both at the NFL level and at the college level. But obviously at the college level, you see it a lot less because you have a lot fewer athletes who are going to be able to pull that off. And so it was just a, a nice article and just just a good way to sort of confirm what we think we know about this kind of coverage. It's like the most football, football-y thing ever in terms of like when you look into statistics that you're like, oh, press coverage works better. And then you're like, oh, well, you can only use press coverage if you're really good at it. <laughs> so which is what we kind of knew ahead of time to your point. So I agree with you on that one. Yeah. And, and I guess I will also mention, Mark acknowledged this a little bit uh, earlier, but one of the, my favorite things of the book each year is at the end of the book, after you've seen all the stuff about the 2021 20, prospects, the guys for the current year, you get to see a look ahead to the guys next year. And you get a little bit of a taste of 
the players that you might want to look for in the coming year and guys who are sort of statistical outliers who you can keep an eye on going forward. 700 pages, the most football-y thing you will ever read. The 2021 SIS Football Rookie Handbook is coming soon, featuring scouting reports on more than 250 players entering the NFL in 2021. The handbook is a must-read for football fans. The book is written as if you, the reader, are one of the team's decision-makers. We capture every strength and weakness both through scouting and statistical analysis, and we've got the most detailed injury information in the scouting industry. The handbook also features essays on important football topics and provides an in-depth take from the perspective of every position on the field. New this year, it will be available on Kindle. To order the Football Rookie Handbook, go to www.actasports.com or wherever books are sold. This wraps up today's edition of the Off the Charts Football Podcast. Thank you for listening. You can find us on Twitter at sportsinfo underscore SIS. The Football Rookie Handbook has shipped. Order your copy wherever you buy books. The best deal is through our publisher at actasports.com. There's also a Kindle edition that brings the information of the handbook to the convenience of your e-reader, cell phone, or wherever you read e-books. We'll be back in two weeks. For my co-host, Matt Manicharian, and our producer, Justin Stein, I'm Mark Simon. Thank you for joining us for the latest episode of the Off the Charts Football Podcast. 